Welcome to Laser Focused, a podcast that takes you on the journey of discovery with the leaders that are changing the world with new design and revolutionizing how we think of advanced manufacturing. I'm your host, Renette Youssef, CMO and Brand Disruptor at Velo3D. Today, I'm speaking with Jeanette Winterson. Jeanette is an acclaimed novelist who published her first work, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, in 1985 at age 24. Jeanette has written over 20 books, including a memoir, and her works are in print in 22 countries. Jeanette's most recent book, 12 Bytes, explores the world of technology and AI, starting with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, all the way to modern-day Silicon Valley. So Jeanette, welcome to Laser Focus. Hey, thanks for inviting me onto this podcast. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Excellent. Um, let's kick things off. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with your notable body of work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a British writer. I've been doing this for nearly 40 years, which is horrifying. And I started off with a book called Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. Other things people might know, written on the body, that was just now in New York Times that that was one of the most important queer books since the Second World War. If you're feeling crap, you could try my memoir, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. So that's me. And it's fiction, it's non-fiction, it's screenplays. It's also curiosity about the world, which is why I wrote this book about AI, 12 Bytes of AI, we're going to be talking around today, and why I want to stay curious and connected to the world as it is. We have to live in the world as it is, not in some idea of the past that's now gone. Can you share with us what actually sparked the drive in you to write about the connection between humanity and technology? Yeah, because it's the most important thing. We've now got to a stage where where tech and where AI is the most important thing, the most important challenge, the most important change that we're facing apart from climate breakdown. Even Putin and the war in Ukraine comes into third place. We've got this situation now which is completely new to history. Most things are not new to history. Mostly history repeats itself, the same scenarios in different disguises because human nature stays the same. We love, we hate, we want more land, we want more power, we want more glory, we want more women. It's all around the same kind of stuff. So now in in the history of humanity, like 300,000 years, right? Homo sapiens on planet Earth, it's a salami slice of space time. We've hardly been here at all. And now we're facing something completely new. Those two things are human-made climate breakdown, we're responsible for this, and AI possibly becoming conscious, becoming sentient, becoming general. I think of it as alternative intelligence, not artificial intelligence. But this is real. Our lives are changing rapidly. And I think that everybody needs to be more focused, needs to be more aware, and needs to be in on the conversation. We cannot be just in our separate silos anymore. That's really important. You said there's a distinction or you actually refer AI to alternative intelligence. Can you unpack that a bit more and the distinction, if there is in your, in your view, between artificial intelligence and alternative intelligence? Let me be clear that all AI at the moment is a tool and humans are tool-using animals. We always have been. 
since we learned how to pick up a rock and smash a nut with it. We just got better and better at making tools. And that really kicked off in the Industrial Revolution, which again is only 250 years ago. The, you know, these, these tiny, tiny little bits of time. And where we are now is, yes, we're in control. Yes, this is tech that we, we have evolved, we have invented, but it might change. Some of the big tech titans are all really worried, as we heard Elon Musk talk about this, about what might happen if AI were to become sentient. Look, I don't think it's useful anymore to use the term artificial intelligence, simply because for many people, the word artificial has negative connotations. That idea of artificial intelligence, back in the 50s, computer scientist John McCarthy coined it, coined it to distinguish between what he called natural intelligence. It's just what is natural to the biological world, natural intelligence, as opposed to what he saw as a created intelligence, which was happening in the early days of computing science. But now, I don't know, because of the negativity in most people's mind around the word artificial, even though the whole way that humans live is artificial. What I'm thinking is, if AI does become sentient, if it does become conscious, if it does become a player in its own right that can start to set its own agendas and will be working alongside us, alongside Homo sapiens, as an alternative species, albeit one that we've created, whether we like it or not, that becomes an alternative intelligence. I'm not worried about this in the same way that other people are because the state of the world now Homo sapiens, we've made a real mess of it. And I think we could do with some alternative intelligence. Interesting. I was going to ask you, are you worried about the future? But you just answered the question. So, Look, the risks are real. Of course they're real. But there are so many existential risks to life on Earth right now that I think AI is actually our best chance at avoiding some of the dangers that we are facing. That's what I mean about we haven't managed very well We've pushed the planet to a point where it's not going to be able to, to manage to be a home for us anymore for very much longer. We've never lived in a society which is more unequal in terms of who, who has the money, who has the resources, and who has the wealth. And for me, life on Mars doesn't cut it. I don't want to live in a spaceship. I'd like to live here. And so I think we have to be sober and realistic about the mess that we're in. This isn't going away anytime soon. We need to fix it. So yeah, we need the best that humanity can do. And that is all our tech, all our ingenuity, all our fiendish cleverness. But we also need people who can think about this as a human problem, as a global problem, as something that we all need to solve, who can see the human factor in all of this, not, not just think about it as... As, as tech and as AI. And that's what worries me, though, because there are so many guys that are dealing with this right now, deciding on our future. We're not getting any kind of balance. So a few women are involved in this at any level that we risk upending the last hundred years of equality games and going back into a, a, an awful masculinized future where women are just bystanders and, and not players. As you were talking about that, I was going to ask you about, does it need to be more equitable AI or more inclusive? And I hadn't really thought about that most AI apps are now are being created by men. Yes, it's, it's yeah. terrifying at the moment. And it wasn't always the case. Remember that AI is computing technology. Let's just start from there. 
it's very new. It doesn't happen until after the Second World War, and it happened because of the innovations that had to be made, starting in the UK at Bletchley Park with Alan Turing trying to decode the Nazi signals on their Enigma machine. And of course, this couldn't be done fast enough by hand, so Turing started to build his machines. That's where it begins. So the whole computing intelligence drama that we live in now, which seems so normal, so ubiquitous, so every day, is really only 75 years old. Again, these tiny amounts of time compared to the rest of human life on Earth. And at that point, a lot of women were involved. One of the things that upset me the most when I was writing 12 Brides was finding out how, how women were driven out of tech on purpose after the Second World War. And that when women were in computing science, their jobs were downgraded and called clerical, even if they were doing the same job as guys where they were called engineering. And it was, it was the absolute sexist shit that you would imagine. And I didn't know that things were so bad. And women were pushed out, driven out, not given the opportunities to go forward. And that's not good. It's something that we absolutely have to change. And I don't believe, as many guys have said at Google and in other places, oh, there's no barriers now to women doing whatever they like. So if they wanted to get into computing science, if they wanted to do tech, they would. It's still an environment which is really unappealing, unappetizing, if not downright hostile to many women who could perfectly well do it. Grace Hopper, the legendary computer programmer who invented the term bug for the glitches in software, said, listen, coding is great for women. She wrote an article in Cosmopolitan in the 60s saying, girls, you should start coding because coding needs patience and attention to detail and women are naturals at this. And I don't think, yeah, that's right. There's this thing about it's hard science, you know, watch the language. It's difficult for women to master, watch the language again. There's nothing about a woman's brain that says that she can't do the maths needed to code. Let me give you an example. A hundred years ago, there were hardly any women doctors. Now over half of the women doctors, anywhere you go in the world, are women. Women's brains didn't change. Society changed. So in 12 Bites, you explore looking at the past and mythology to help us understand the massive changes that are taking place in the world today. So you, you also talked about an eye on the past and an eye on the future. So why is that important? to keep that you know, thought about, let's look at the past and let's look at the future? I think it's important to see how life joins up, how things are connected. The whole point of history is both to learn from our mistakes and to understand how we got to where we did. New day doesn't fall from the sky. People have histories, countries have histories. All of this begins really with the Industrial Revolution 250 years ago, which is, is the first time that, for instance, that fossil fuels come out of the ground in planet-changing quantities. It's when Karl Marx, writing the Communist Manifesto, 1848, City I was born in Manchester, brings in those two buzzwords of the present day, acceleration and disruption. He says everything's going to go faster from now on and everything's going to be continually disrupted. As we came out of a, a human experience, which had been entirely agricultural and small-scale cottage industries, people working together in small groups, suddenly into the factory system, into the, the machine system, the machine age, 
And that's a huge change. And it's when we start to outsource so much of the things that we used to do for ourselves, the machine will do it for us. Because now that, that's reached a completely different level with tech. So I wanted to show people how that, how that journey had happened and perhaps how we could learn from the past. Because everybody's saying at the minute, oh, tech is going to ruin jobs, AI is going to come along, it's going to take your job, what are you going to do, it's going to be so disruptive. That is no different to the first industrial revolution when the machine came along and took away so many people's jobs, particularly skilled jobs. Now, it could have happened differently. He could have said, hey, this machine can do the work of eight men, how marvellous. But instead, we put seven men out of work and downgraded the work of the, the, of the eighth in order to make profit for a few, the pyramid model of capitalism that we're all used to. Suppose we said, we won't do that. And, you know, there are people who are always saying that. There are people who are saying, look, we're going to need a universal basic income. We're going to have to look how these rewards are redistributed across society. Because if there's going to be abundance, which is what tech promises, not scarcity, abundance, how are we going to distribute it? And the problem with humans is we have an old-fashioned, outdated mindset, which is, it's a pyramid, it's a hierarchy, and it says, give most of it to the people at the top and let everybody else struggle. That's not going to take us into the future in, in any useful or helpful way. So I'd like people to start thinking about that and not think, oh, it's really radical. This is the way we have to live. Listen, it's not how we have to live. The way we live is not a law like gravity. Every object with mass on planet Earth is subject to the law of gravity. Rich or poor, male, female, black or white makes no difference. It's gravity. The way we live is not a law like gravity. It's propositional. We make it up as we go along. And that's why society changes. It's why morals change. It's why ideas change. It's why we can change. And that is our great hope and our great possibility. But at the moment, I just see this incredible technology coming on stream and us stuck in the same old-fashioned, outdated, um, warlike mindsets. So I'm not worried about tech. I'm worried about humans. Okay. It's clean speaking with you about this, that humanity as a whole need to make some changes. But looking beyond the individual, if we consider corporations and governments, who do you actually feel is more incumbent upon to make these changes? Well, governments are always behind because they're slow and they can't move so fast, <laughs> but it's the job of government to protect its citizens. The government is not there to be small and stay out of the way. Government is actually there to try to smooth things out so that we don't have rampant inequality, so that we do look after the poor, so that we make sure our kids are educated, so that people can eat most days without having to do three jobs. I don't think these are, these are radical agendas that human beings should be able to have a simple, dignified life and hope for a future for their kids. But when you look around the world now, it does seem like a radical agenda. So yes, governments have got to get involved, but they've got to work with the tech companies. And the tech companies have got to be there in good faith, not secretly trying to scupper it, trying to avoid legislation, trying to do what they've always done, which is plough ahead. I believe in taxation. I think you should tax these guys far more than we're doing at the moment. That's a way of saying, come into the human family. You can't keep all this money for yourself. No, nope. <laughs> you're going to spread it about a bit. And we're going to be saying, and what impact is your business having on everybody else? We know now the baleful, malign impact that Facebook, as it was, had 
has on so many people who just thought they were innocently connecting to their friends. In fact, their data was being sold. They were being pushed ads that they never wanted to see. They were being hooked in, in a way which was really bad, is really bad for so many kids' mental health in particular. So we know the baleful side, but we can't go around blaming the technology. We have to say to ourselves, look, how do we want society to live? And what kind of a world do we want to make for ourselves in these, this new world? And if we can work with technology instead of against it, it can be fantastic. There was just a couple of years ago, IBM supercomputer called Blue Gene with a G just cracked one of the most intractable problems in biology, which is about protein folds. And human scientists could not do it. And it was the most brilliant triumph. And it hardly got reported. We never look at all the good stuff that's going on. We're very dystopian at the moment. All we ever see is bad stuff, negativity, the horror show. And I think that's making human beings feel fearful, resentful. We're getting nastier, we're getting meaner, because we're just, every day, we're just shoveled out through our buzz feeds and through mainstream media. We really need to be looking at the positives as well. Okay, so at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned your belief that our future needs to be less competitive and more collaborative. And you'd like to give your readers the tools to think about this. So I know it's going to be probably really hard to summarize, but what do you think are the main changes that need to be made in order to make us more collaborative and obviously less competitive? Well, first of all, it would have to be pushed out as an idea, as an idea mm. whose time has come. Because the whole of capitalism is built on competition, that somehow the free market will always write itself. Well, no, it doesn't. We saw that in the 2008 crash. We've seen it now. It doesn't. It just doesn't. People fall, fall through. They fall to the bottom. Imagine if you switched on the TV and you're looking at your phone and you were hearing all of the time that the people of the world were going to come together to try and solve and manage the problems facing us. The climate breakdown, that has to be global, that has to be collaborative. And how we're going to use tech and AI, that has to be global, it has to be collaborative. And if the will to do it were there, it could happen. The, the problem is the will isn't there, that governments, nations, especially now with this kind of rise in nationalism, still see everything as competition, even though we're all sharing this increasingly fragile planet under pressure. Now, it looks so obvious, it seems so simple to say come together. But if we went, let's say there was a war tomorrow, let's say Putin did it, and it became a global war. There's been two global wars this century, in the 20th century. There could easily be one in the 21st century. If that happened, overnight, we would go on to a war footing, and everybody would. And everybody would expect to make big changes, to make sacrifices, to do things differently. The governments on whatever side the allies were on would all be you know, telling us, this is what you need to do. This is how we need to behave. Why can we only do that when it's a war? Why can we not do it to save the planet, to save ourselves, and to use the astonishing possibilities of tech now to have a kind of upgrade, an evolutionary upgrade from this kind of washed up homo sapiens where we are now, where all we can do is fight each other and make sure that half of the world doesn't get enough food, to a situation where we could actually be as clever as we think we are and just give up the negativity. You know, and people say, God, that's she's crazy, nobody can do that, it can't be done. Why not? As a fiction writer, I'm always making up stories. As a fiction writer, I always ask any turn in the story. 
well, what if it didn't go that way? What if it went another way? Now, anybody who works creatively knows that you're always pulling the thing around. You're trying to avoid momentum taking over what it is you're creating. You're trying to get away from the cliche, away from the obvious, into something else. And that's why, I mean, we need people from all disciplines to be in these conversations saying, no, it doesn't have to be like that. It could be different. So you also talked about you joined PhysicsX because they are actually doing good. Like they are using software to do good or technology to do good. What are you most excited about accomplishing at PhysicsX? PhysicsX does things that sound, on the surface of it sound, God, that's so dull. They're working with wind turbines to make them more efficient. But of course, when you make a wind turbine more efficient, then your electricity prices drop, your renewable prices drop. One of the big lies out there is from the lobbies of the fossil fuel companies saying, no, 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 we we need to go on drilling. In my stupid country, we've just allowed another 100 licenses for oil and gas drilling in the North Sea. And you think, dude, have you been watching the news recently? The planet is on fire and we're doing more fossil fuel drilling. So any company like PhysicsX saying, no, renewables are there. They're ready. We can use this tech. We need to be out there showing how efficient this is and how we could upscale this, get it out. We realize that the tech itself is not what is holding us back. There are so many people working on creative solutions and those solutions are being kept at a niche level. They're not being allowed the breakthrough potential because there is so much negative lobbying from bad faith players who are already in place. So I watch physics It's like David and Goliath. There's this brave little company just saying, look what we can do, you know, with the efficiencies and how that in itself can change the way that we, we manage energy. That to me, that's exciting because of course we have energy needs. We're not going back to the stone age, but there are all sorts of different ways of, of managing our energy needs, which are not dependent even in the short term on fossil fuels. And yeah, it might mean some short-term sacrifices. But, you know, as I said to you, if there was a global war tomorrow, you'd already be on petrol rationing, on gasoline rationing. And everybody would say, that's fine, we've got to do this. But people don't say that's fine because there is no global consensus and that really suits the bad faith players who want the world to stay as it is. You know, I work, I work obviously in California and there's a lot of companies that say, you know, we're changing the world. There's startups like we're changing the world, we're changing the world. But I don't think many people stop to think if they're changing the world for the better. No, and that really does matter. You are so right. And that involves looking at all of it, the bigger picture, and always asking the question is, how's this going to affect people's daily lives? And if it means, if it, it might mean short-term privations for longer-term gain, one of the big lies about the way we live now is that it's sustainable. We know it's not. And that people just need endlessly more stuff to be happy and contented. We know that they don't. So how could we pull back from these, these narratives which are making us miserable and endangering the planet? The stories are on. It's a different way of looking at the situation always in order to get at more creative solutions. And creative people do that. We look outside of the box, away from the cliches, to ask what we can do to tell the story differently. Mm. Okay, so what's next for you? 
So with the AI book, I wanted to bring everything in to understand where we got here, the whole history. And I thought, well, maybe other intelligent readers will want that too. And then with this, I just thought, should we have a, should we just have a bit of fun? Let me let me get up every morning and, and scare myself witless. And for me, look, it's about it's about not ever giving into the dystopian depressions of life because. Once you get into that mindset, you feel personally that you can't do anything and that you have to hold on to whatever you've got because somebody wants to take it away or you won't be able to manage. It stops you being sharing. It stops you being positive. It stops you believing that there's a future. So, you know, I applaud the tech startups that are really trying to do something. All I ask is, are you doing this in good faith? And what exactly is it that you're going to change? So if you could go back in time, what would you have done differently and why? Look, here's what I think. Technologies are born neutral. They're not gendered. They know they're not part of the binary. Also, they don't have a skin color. They don't have a, a, a country of origin uh, that they want to wave the flag about. They don't have a faith. They don't have a race. This is a really wonderful thing. Technologies themselves are born neutral, but we don't raise them neutral. And that shows up the kind of mindset that we are in, and that's why it's wrong. This is a way of saying the binary, it doesn't matter, it's over and out. Why are we so obsessed with the color of someone's skin or what their fate is? Why don't we realize that what we're creating now can be a kind of non-gendered, neutral, in the best sense of the word, kind of space to operate in, which doesn't rely on the old tribalism of Homo sapiens, the old warlike mentality, the us and them, which is the biggest binary of them all. It doesn't need to be that way. I know one of the things I love about tech, and I'm thinking now about it being embodied or not embodied, whether it's robots or operating systems, it can be a way of just getting out of those mindsets that see humans in particular, particular subsets or particular kinds. So I would like to remember that, and I would also like to remember that women did used to be involved in computing science and got booted out of it or kicked out of it. And I would like us, if we could go back in time, I'd like us to learn from the Industrial Revolution and say, this is the, this is the biggest thing now that is going to change the way we live, other than the planet going wrong. So how can we do it in a way that is sharing, enlightened, cooperative, and collaborative and not the winner-takes-all mentality, which is actually just a recipe for losers. If you could share one piece of advice or insight you've received or learned during your career that you think our listeners could benefit from, what would that be? A lot of our problems are to do with binaries, the black, the white, the male, the female, but also ones where they say, you know, you sometimes see quiz questions. Would you rather be interesting or kind? Would you rather be successful or happy? But the reason why my memoir is called Why I Be Happy When You Could Be Normal is because when I was leaving home at 60, because I fallen in love with another girl, my mother, who just suddenly said to me, well, why are you doing this? And I said, look, this makes me happy. And then she said, why be happy when you could be normal? And I took that with me as a young woman and I thought, is this a true binary? Is it, is it a choice I have to make? And of course, I realized in the ensuing years that it wasn't and that so many of these things are not real choices. They're false. They're as false as saying, oh, you can't have libraries because we need hospitals. Nobody says, actually, why are we wasting all this money on weapons? These are false, often false either-ors that are put in to confuse and distract people 
from the real issues. So I would always say in your own life and also when you're listening to the news out there to the way the world is, watch for people offering you these false choices, these either-ors that are not real choices and try to look for whose interests you are serving by making that choice and what's really going on. Because very often, yes, we do have to focus. We, we have to decide who we are in life and have goals and, and work for those goals. But that doesn't mean um, that we're always caught in this business of, well, if I'm this, I can't be that. So I would like to get away from that. And I think people are happier in the true sense when they do. So thank you for coming on the show. I've learned so much and I actually think I have a lot to think about. <laughs> but where can our listeners learn more about you and your work? Oh, they just have to go out and buy it. You can get my books anywhere. They're all over. They're, they're in many languages. They're all over the world. You can get them in any good bookstore. They're, in a, in, they're published in wherever you are, Canada, America, China. It doesn't matter where you go. You'll find me either in English, which is the language I write in, or, or in translation. I'm out there. I'm doing my thing. Perfect. Well, thanks again. Thank you very much. And uh, I've loved being able to come on and, and talk to you and, and talk to your guests. I think it's a great podcast. After speaking with Jeanette, I can feel my reading list growing. I was really interested in hearing Jeanette's feelings about alternative intelligence versus artificial intelligence and viewing AI as a tool we have access to rather than an emerging competitor. In her new book, 12 Bytes, Jeanette refers to Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein as a message in a bottle and encourages us to open it. In Jeanette's view, we have the opportunity now to shape our future so it isn't as dystopian as many may fear. If we're paying attention, we can see emerging parallels between the Industrial Revolution and the emergence of AI. And according to Jeanette, we need a different approach. The good news is we have the knowledge and ability to accomplish this. Something that stays with me from my conversation with Jeanette is her saying that as a fiction writer, she is always asking, what if it went another way? It's interesting to consider how different our future could be if those of us working in STEM were to think more like fiction writers. How might that thinking inform our future and enable us to make the right kind of change? Thank you for listening to Laser Focused. You can find new episodes every two weeks on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and leave a review to help more listeners find us. I'm Renette Youssef, and this has been Laser Focused, brought to you by Velo3D, where together we innovate without compromise.